All right, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started, and we're in Matthew chapter 19 tonight, and we're just going to do verses 1 to 12, right? Chapter 19, verses 1 to 12, which is a teaching concerning marriage and divorce. Marriage and divorce, okay? Matthew 19, let's read verses 1 to 12. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee, came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to Him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples asked him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to meet together tonight and to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand, Lord, as well, that we might hold uh, marriage in high regard, uh, Lord, among us, and that the marriage bed would be kept undefiled. Lord, may we um, be committed and faithful to one another, and Lord, not treat this institution, uh, Lord, that you have established with, um, Lord, any laxity or uh, in a way that is, is not acceptable to your will. Uh, so, Lord, we do pray that you would establish our homes, establish our families. Lord, give to us strong marriages. Uh, Lord, we pray that you bless our children. Lord, that you would grant to them salvation and godliness. And Lord, that we might uh, do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this passage, Jesus is teaching concerning marriage and divorce. And the occasion here is a testing, a challenge that was issued to him by the Pharisees, right? Not because they are really wanting to know this, but they're trying to trip him up, trying to trip him up in something that he might say so that they can accuse him of sin and, and try to bring him into open shame. So that's the occasion for why this is happening. It says in verse 3 that the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So here the question is regarding divorce and, and whether or not it's lawful to divorce a woman, a wife, for any reason at all, right? Any reason, no matter how uh, unjust it may be, no matter how insignificant it may be, right? If the wife doesn't cook up to his standards, is that a legitimate reason to divorce the wife, right? If the wife uh, is getting older uh, and she's losing her youthful looks, and he decides that he wants to marry a younger woman who's more attractive, is that a legitimate reason for him to divorce her and to marry another woman? What if she's not very good at keeping house and he doesn't like the way that things are is, and he wants someone else, right? So this is the question, or they just don't get along, right? Because sometimes that happens in the home as well, that they're not a good fit and they're not getting along. So can we just divorce? And this is a very pertinent question because in our own day, 
divorce is rampant within our own country, right? Even in America, nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce. And most of those divorces are not justified, right? They're unjust divorces. So this is a very pertinent question for our own day and one that we need to consider and one that we must understand. So is it lawful to divorce a woman for any reason at all? Matthew chapter 5 Matthew 5, 31 to 32, Jesus has already taught on divorce in this regard. Matthew 5, 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here... The law does say, and we'll read it in due time, that whoever sends his wife away, a husband that sends her away, is to give her a certificate of divorce. Now the issue is, what is the purpose and intent of that law? That's what's being misconstrued and being corrupted by the scribes and Pharisees in order to justify laxity in marriage and quick and easy divorces, just like it is in our own day. But Jesus is making this point that if the divorce is not justified... If the divorce takes place and the reason is not unchastity, meaning that the wife committed immorality against the husband, that would be a just reason for the man to divorce the woman. Well, if that is not the reason and he divorces her, he makes her commit adultery because inevitably what's she going to do? She's going to marry another man, but that marriage, the first marriage is not nullified in the sight of God. In God's sight, they are still one, the original husband and wife, though in the sight of the law and in the sight of the land, in the civil courts, there may be legal separation in that regard. But in the sight of God and according to his institution of marriage, the husband and wife, the original husband and wife are still married. So the second marriage is not lawful, right? It is an unjust marriage and therefore she commits adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, he says, uh, makes her commit adultery and the whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's also the man because he's marrying, he's, he is taking for himself another man's wife in the sight of God, right? In the sight of God, right? So that's why this is so complex, right? And so uh, there's so much going on in this law relating to marriage and divorce and why we need to understand it. We don't want to commit adultery, right? We don't want to marry someone and be in adultery, right? Perpetually. So we need to understand this and make sure that we are practicing it in the correct way. Then verse 4, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Here Jesus is going to start from the ground up, right, and build up his case. So he goes to the institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden and how it was initially uh, instituted by God, right? That's the, where he's going to begin, right? That he who created... He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he asked them, have it you not read this? Have you not read this? Don't you know and understand these things? Now, this would be a very easy passage for them to know. This is the very beginning of the Bible, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is when this takes place. And for him to say, haven't you read this? He's saying, don't you know your Bible? You haven't read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? how God created the world, how God created male and female, how he brought them together. So haven't you read these things that he who created them from the beginning and who is the one that created them? 
God Himself. God is the one that created mankind, and God is the one that made them male and female. He made a man and He made a woman, and then He brought the two together, which also establishes here no place for any sodomy, transgenderism, right? Whatever is being taught and promoted today in regards to uh, sexuality, sexual identity, all of that is nonsense and is completely and utterly, utterly ludicrous, okay? And we should not give any credence to those types of things. God created male and female. That's it, right? Not a uh, hundred different uh, variations that exist within the uh, identity of mankind, okay? This is how God made them, and He did that in the beginning, before sin entered into the world, which is a very important key. This institution precedes the fall, and as it was instituted by God in its perfect state, it was before sin had entered into the world. And that's going to be important because the stipulation of divorce is a stipulation for a fallen world, a sinful world, not a perfect world. But if we're going to understand the institution itself, we need to go back to its beginning, right? To the beginning when God established it. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates man in his own image, and he made them male and female. Male and female both in the image of God. Then chapter 5, chapter 5 Verses 1 and 2. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So there, male and female again, in the day in which God created them. That was true before the fall. And then this is after the fall. And it still remains true that God created them male and female. And the expectation is one husband with one wife, right? And that the two of them come together. Then also Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16. Actually, we'll start in verse uh, 13. This is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so, who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So there, he made them male and female, uh, and... God is a witness between the man and the wife of his youth that he's dealing treacherously with. God created them male and female in order 
to seek godly offspring. In order to produce offspring, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and then that we might raise up children who fear God. Right? This is what we are supposed to do, and God hates it when there is divorce that is unjustified. Right? It is not pleasing in the sight of God. Then verse 5, He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here he quotes again back from Genesis chapter 2, going back to creation. Already he's established that there's a male and a female, so the husband and wife. And then also here is the parameters or whatever guidelines. What, what is the intention of this? Well, the man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That this is a sacred, mystical, spiritual union between the husband and wife. That when they are wed together, the two individual parts, the man and the female, become one body, right? They become one together. They're no longer two, but now they have become one flesh. And that's why he leaves his father and mother, right? He's not under their authority anymore, but now he establishes his own home. And now he has his own wife and his dedication, his faithfulness, right, his closest neighbor is no longer his mother and father. Now his closest neighbor is his wife, the wife of his youth, and he is to give regard to her, to love her, and to cherish her, and to be with her. And they become one flesh, one flesh together, both in the sight of God spiritually, and then also, of course, physically when they come together, and then also when they have offspring, because the offspring is a combination of the two, right? one flesh that come out of the two. In all these ways, this is evident. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. It says, The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. So there, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And there, the man leaves father and mother and is joined to his wife. Not, not temporarily, but it, it, it entails a permanent union, right? That only can be separated by death. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. 1 Corinthians six fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. So there, if the two become one flesh, and this is why he's saying that you must flee immorality, and here prostitution, right? Because the one who joins himself to the prostitute becomes one flesh with her. The two become one in this way. Then also Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Well, let's pick up in verse 28. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. So there, the husband ought to love his wife because she's one flesh with him. And no one naturally hates his own flesh, right? We don't do that to our own body. We cherish it, we take care of it, we nourish it. If our body is sick, we do what's necessary to tend to it. Well, this is how the husband should treat his wife because she is one flesh with him. So he ought to care for her and love her in the same way that he loves and cares and cherishes himself. And the basis is they're one flesh. They're one flesh. So just as you do for yourself, so then you also ought to do for your wife. Verse 6. 19 verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here the two are no longer one, or they're no longer two, but now they have become one flesh. And the point is that this has happened in the sight of God, right? God is the one who created this institution. The first institution instituted by God is the institution of marriage. Right, institution of marriage is what God first ordained in the world and therefore it needs to be observed and kept in a proper way. And if God is the one who has brought them together, God joined them together, then no man has the authority or right to separate it. Right? Because it's God who has given His authority, His seal of approval, His legitimacy to this institution. Therefore, man does not have the right to redefine it and man does not have the right to break it, right? To declare it null and void, right? On his own authority. That's why he says in chapter 5, 31 and 32, that if uh, someone, if the woman is married and is divorced uh, illegitimately, she commits adultery. Because in God's sight, the marriage is still intact. God joined them together. No man has the right to separate them. Also, no man has the right to redefine the institution of marriage. So the government cannot, though they are practicing it now, uh, uh, two men getting married, two women getting married, those marriages are not legitimate. Those are false marriages. They're not legitimate. So uh, two men can't get divorced because they're not married in the first place. The marriage itself is null and void. It's not legitimate because it's impossible. It's an impossibility according to God. No matter what the courts say, what the government says, this cannot be the case. Then verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command 
to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, if the purpose of God from creation was that a man would marry a woman and the two would come together and that that would be a perpetual union that would never come apart, then why are there even laws about divorce? Right? Why are there laws if there is not supposed to be any divorce? Why are there laws governing the way divorce is conducted and regulated in this present world? That's the question that they're asking him. And they're trying to make Jesus contradict Moses. Right? That's what they're trying to do. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns again to her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, or if the later husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So here, if the man takes and marries the woman, well, it should be a permanent union. However, because of sin, because of our flesh, it happens she finds no favor in his eyes, but he finds some indecency in, in her to the point that he sends her away. He doesn't want her anymore. He has to write her a certificate of divorce so that she has legal protection, right? That's the issue. It's so that the innocent party, right, is this just for him to send her away because she doesn't find favor in his eyes? No. So if he sends her away in that regard, then she's going to be vulnerable. She's going to be exposed. She's not going to have any legal protection. And it's not good and right in the sight of God. Well, he has to give her this in order to protect the innocent victim. Right? That's why divorce laws are necessary because we live in a sinful, fallen world and all marriages are not going to stay together. Then there needs to be protection for the innocent party. Then in verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. The reason this is the case is because you have hard hearts, your sinful hearts. He knows, Moses knows, that he's not dealing with perfect men. He's not even dealing with righteous and redeemed men. These laws are governing the civil uh, ordinance of marriage. And he knows that there are going to be wicked men, and those wicked men, and there's wicked women, and they're not going to be faithful to their marriage. And they're going to want to separate for any reason that they want. And so this law is there in order to protect the innocent party in the unjustified divorce. And it's because of sin. It's because of hardness of heart that Moses did this. But it's, that's not the intention of God in marriage. Right. So because there is a law regulating marriage and regulating divorce should not lead to the conclusion that God approves of divorce. That's the point that Jesus is making or that we should treat it 
as something that's just easy to give and receive and come and go and do it however we please. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So if you divorce the wife for any reason except immorality and marry another woman, then you're committing adultery. So the only exception given here for divorce that would make it justified is immorality. Unrepentant immorality in either the husband or the wife, that is a legitimate means for divorce. And then if that one who's been sinned against divorces his wife because she's committed immorality, then he is free from sin. He's not committed any sin, and he's also free to remarry in that regard. Then verse 10. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Right? Because this is so complicated and difficult, right? Because we don't want to commit divorce, right? That's a sin against God. And then there's a potential of adultery and immorality that will come out of that. So in order to avoid it, it's better just not to marry at all, right? People should just stay single and then they don't have to deal with this issue of whether or not the wife gets on their nerves or he gets on her nerves and there's this big uh, division and, and result that comes from that and then all the complications that come when divorce enters into the equation. It's better just to stay single, not get married, and live that way. That's what they're saying. It's better not even to get married. And then Jesus says, but he said, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. The average man, the typical man, the typical average woman, they need to get married, right? This is what is common, is that men need to find a wife and he needs to marry her and the woman needs to find a husband and she needs to marry him, right? And it's the exception to the rule, right? What is common and typical is that men and women get married. And what is uncommon in the exception is that someone doesn't get married and only those to whom it has been given as a gift from God. God grants this gift to some men for the sake of the kingdom of God, but not for all men. And it's actually, it's the exception. It's, it's rare. It's not something that is universal or something for all men. He says, in, that's what he says in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start reading in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's true, right? It's good for a man who's not married not to touch a woman, right? This is the way it should be. There shouldn't be fornication and there shouldn't be illicit touching or relations before marriage. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Because of sexual immorality, the temptation to sexual immorality, then it's good for the man to have a wife and the wife to have a husband. Then the man has a lawful, God-honoring way to fulfill this desire. And the woman has a lawful, God-honoring way to fulfill her desire. And now there's not immorality, but it's good and right and moral in the sight of God. Right? Whenever the two get married, and then they are able to do and fulfill those desires. And this is why he says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in, uh, and, uh, in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So there, not all men can receive it. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, than to have these desires and not have a legitimate God-honoring way to fulfill them and to express them. So that should lead to marriage. But here in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, I wish all men were even as myself am. And how was the Apostle Paul? He was unmarried. He was unmarried, but he had self-control. He wasn't burning with passion. He was able to control it. And this was because of the gift of God. Not all men have that gift. And if God hasn't given that gift, then we shouldn't force it upon ourselves because it's contrary to the will of God and what God desires. Not all men can accept the statement, Jesus says, but only those to whom it has been given. Then verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So there are eunuchs, a eunuch being a man who doesn't have those desires because of what has happened to him. Some men are like that, again, very rarely from birth, right? Because of some deformity or some mutation that took place where they don't have those uh, reproductive parts in that way. And then other eunuchs made that way by men. And this was a common practice, especially in courts uh, with kings and with uh, those who were over, especially the households and the wives, is that the men who managed that, the slaves, that they would be made eunuchs. That they would be made eunuchs uh, so that there was no temptation for them to commit immorality with the wife, with the daughters there in the master's house. And that's been done by men. And then there are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This would be like the Apostle Paul. Not that he mutilated himself, but it was a spiritual eunuch, a spiritual eunuch in that he had self-control and those desires that he uh, would naturally have, God gave him a gift so that they were abated. And he was able to control that. Then he, and it's for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel because whenever a man has a wife and children, he has responsibilities and obligations at home, which take time. It takes time for him. He has to give himself to those scenes. He can't neglect his wife and children. But if he doesn't have a wife and children, then he's free to go whenever he pleases. It's easier for him to travel. He can go to and fro preaching the gospel. He can give much more time to the people, to doing those things, than the one who has a wife and children. Right? Not that that makes it better if someone doesn't have a wife and children, because you need pastors as well and ministers who have wives and children so that they can set an example for the body as well. But there are obligations and responsibilities that come with that that take time so that there's less time to minister and to preach the gospel in that way. But the Apostle Paul wasn't hindered in that way. 
So if he wanted to get up and go on a missionary journey, he could take off. And if he needed to go from town to town, he could go from town to town. And if somebody was trying to kill him, he didn't have to go get his wife and children and flee. He just took off. And so it made it easier for him to do so. And then he says, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. This is the teaching. This is the expectation. Then this is the way that we should live and practice in relationship to these things.